Radio Mano Papachango. there in podcast land this is chris coming to you on a rainy overcast stormy day in los angeles california topanga canyon to be exact which i guess is appropriate because i recorded this conversation with the legendary author ethnobotanist anthropologist uh all around fascinating man wade davis uh in his office in vancouver on an equally dismal, dreary, overcast afternoon uh, a couple of weeks ago now. I hope you enjoy this. I know you'll enjoy this. If you have any fucking sense at all, you are going to enjoy this. There's, it would be very hard not to. Wade Davis is someone I've wanted to meet for decades, literally, Um, of all living authors that uh, I'm aware of, and there are hundreds of them, He's the only one I ever kind of felt like I might trade my life for his if I had the chance. The guy, you know, he's kind of like, I remember there's a line Robert Sapolsky uses in his fantastic book, A Primate's Memoir, which is on my list of recommended books, along with One River by Wade Davis, if you check my website, you'll see there's a, a place with recommended reading. And anyway, there's a line he uses in that where he says, uh, he's talking about baboons. I think he and a friend who studies chimps are, are watching baboons. And his friend says something like baboons would be chimps if they had any ambition, something like that. You know, they're like almost as smart as chimps, but they're just they're just missing some sort of essential element that would move them up to the next level. Well, you know, in the world of sort of traveler personality, writer type people, TED talkers, authors, uh, I'm the baboon and Wade Davis is the chimpanzee. Wade Davis is what I would be if I were (laughs) if I had that fucking missing element, whether it's you know, an extra 10 IQ points or uh, ambition or having been born just a little earlier or whatever it is, uh, Wade Davis is on another level. He's a fascinating guy. I read his first book uh, about voodoo back in the 80s. I think I was an undergraduate in college when that came out. He's probably, I don't know if he's 10 years older than me, but um, he's a uh, He's been on my radar ever since then, and he's published a bunch of stuff in National Geographic. He's probably published 15 books, um, and he's just uh, he just keeps churning them out, and he's charming and friendly, and fuck, he's even good-looking. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's, there's something horrible about Wade Davis, but I don't know what the hell it is, and um, so I'm just going to assume he's got it all. I hope he does, because he deserves it. He's, he's done so much beautiful meaningful work in his career and he's going strong and you know he's as i say he's he's i don't even know if he's 10 years older than me maybe five i don't know what whatever it is uh he's a great guy so enjoy this conversation now 
What am I going to talk to you about before we get into that? By the time you hear this, uh, there should be online and available uh, a copy of tonight's performance that I'm going to with uh, Moshe Kasher. I'm doing his uh, hound. What's it, what's he call it? Hound tall. I think it's called Hound Tall uh, podcast. And uh, that's in Hollywood. That's a live podcast recording. That's going to be very interesting. It's it's a thing where they get an expert. I guess I'm the expert. They get some expert on stage with uh, Moshe and two other comedians to uh, talk about their, you know, my my area of expertise. And so I'm trying to, like, have a serious um give a serious talk about my shit. And then these three comedians are making fun of it the whole time. So it's kind of a challenge for me as the, uh, the straight man up there. Um, because if I just give up, if I just throw in the towel and stop, you know, speaking seriously, then it doesn't give them the material. Um, but conversely, if I actually try to make a point, it gets very frustrating because, you know, you're being interrupted constantly by these people making jokes and they're pros. So it's an interesting exercise. I enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy being on stage with funny people. And uh, and they are, oh man, the guests tonight are, are real uh, serious. Tonight I'll be uh, appearing with Kumail Nanjaini, I think is how more or less how you pronounce his name. He's, you'd know his face for sure. He's on, He's been on Portlandia and uh, I think he's in Silicon Valley, that show. Um, he's been all over the place. I think he's, I think he's been on maybe on, um, that show, the Mindy project. I'm not sure. Anyway, he's, he's quite well known, very funny guy. And Claudia O'Darity, who I hadn't heard of, uh, until I saw that she was going to be on with me. So I Googled her and, um, and I found these videos that she does. She did. Uh, where she's like, it's like a travel video kind of thing where she's in England and she's sort of showing you around England and talking about Jack the Ripper. And and they're very, very funny. She's Australian and she's got a very deadpan kind of sense of humor. So I'm looking forward to meeting both of them. That'll be a great time. Anyway, that's happening tonight. That's the sort of shit I get up to when I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I asked Moshe once why he he kept inviting me back on the show. This is like probably the third time I've been on that show. And he said, well, Chris, here's the thing. You're funny, but not too funny. So there you have it. I guess I'm funny enough to sort of be on stage with them, but not funny enough to be threatening or, <laughs> or get in the way of them being the, the pros. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I'll be doing that tonight. Uh, Thanksgiving was interesting, of course, you know, thinking about the Indians, thinking about the, the cops in North Dakota, spraying fire hoses at peaceful Native American protesters who are simply asking that they not run their fucking pipeline over sacred land that was granted to the Indians by treaty. But, you know, when treaties become inconvenient, whether because gold is discovered there or oil or anything else of any value whatsoever, treaties are abandoned and uh, the powerless are destroyed. So that's what's happening at uh, Standing Rock, even as we speak. 
Uh, I briefly considered going up there. Uh, my friend Josh Fox from a few episodes back and some other people are up there and uh, I was going to go up there, but I have too much work to do here and it's freezing cold and I'm kind of a pussy. So uh decided it wasn't worth all the expense of flying up there just to sort of symbolically get in the way. So I'm down here. Things happening in the news are just mind blowing. I, I I'm in a state. I'm in a state. I kind of feel like uh, I don't know if you've ever lucid dreamed, but sometimes uh, I'll be in a dream and I'll sort of realize I'm in a dream, and it'll be like it'll be like a, a fragment of my consciousness is like, oh, this is a dream because that couldn't happen in real life, so this must be a dream, and. You, I sort of recognize it, but I'm still dreaming. And so I'm still swept away by this sort of internal logic of the dream. And so I continue on in whatever ridiculous adventure I'm on um, with part of me remembering that this isn't real. Uh, but most of me just sort of, you know, going with it and, and acting as if it is. That's kind of how I feel in life right now. I, I there's this sense of unreality to everything like this can't this can't be real donald trump can't be president giuliani can't be being considered for attorney general like these washed up lunatics these people that that i thought we all agreed were completely ridiculous and not to be taking seri- taken seriously are like taking control of the government, it just doesn't feel real. Uh, there's, it's like when someone close to you dies and you wake up thinking, oh, I'm going to call Fred. And then it's like, oh, shit, Fred died. Like, fuck. It takes time for your consciousness to catch up to reality when it's so radical a shift. I don't know if you're feeling that, but I'm feeling that. It's... Uh, And not just with that, with everything. I mean, being in L.A., you know, I've had lots of things change in the last few months. And I think it's just been too much. I haven't been able to process it all yet. So I don't know if I sound sort of adrift. That may be why. Uh, I noticed uh, there's a British lobbying considered that um, proposes to uh, outlaw unnatural acts in pornography which I think is really interesting. I went, I looked at a couple of articles about it and there are all these specific things that they want to make illegal to show in pornography. Um, you know, ranging from any sort of anything depicting non-consensual sex. So like any sort of rape fantasies or, um, you know, anything that involves, uh, a lot of infliction of pain, um, uh, I think it was like more than three fingers inserted into a vagina or something like that. So there are all these very sort of specific things that they're trying to outlaw in pornography. And honestly, I'm not, I know that, you know, people would probably expect me to come down saying that's, you can't do that, uh, you know, uh, on the free speech kind of uh, side of the argument. And I see that side of the argument and I am sympathetic to it. But on the other hand, I'm also sympathetic to the idea that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be depicting really nasty things. 
especially in places where kids can easily get at them or even adults. It, and it, it brings up the question of to what extent is depicting something, does it normalize it? Right. And so and this sort of ties into the whole thing with Trump and the political changes happening, you know, to the extent that news organizations take this thing seriously and have taken it seriously even you know during the campaigns they normalize it and and that shifts the sort of mainstream conversation into a place where these things are now sort of accepted as part of the normal conversation whereas until recently they were considered extremely fringe and uh it's shocking how quickly what's considered acceptable and normal can change. And part of that is what's depicted in media, right? So I can understand the the impulse to say, hey, you know, we shouldn't have porn that shows women being, you know, beaten up and pissed on. We shouldn't have snuff films on TV, even if, or on, on the internet, even if they're fake, right? Even if it's like, oh, the woman wasn't really killed, but they just put, you know, it's special effects or whatever. I can understand that impulse, right? But what what's really interesting to me is that they're trying to do this with porn, but there's no law being proposed in the UK that I'm aware of that says, Okay, we're not going to depict women being raped in porn. Let's not depict women being raped in movies either or TV shows. Right? Which are on the fucking television and just as easy for kids to see. Or we're not going to let's have a law that says no more depiction of murder. Right? That'll fuck up Sherlock Holmes, won't it? So the premise here is that by seeing something it becomes normalized, we become desensitized to it, and therefore we shouldn't depict it on media. Well, that's either true or it isn't true. We either believe that or we don't believe that. But we can't believe that in porn and not believe it in any other form of media. That just doesn't make any sense. It's either seeing it desensitizes us to it and therefore makes it more likely to happen in real life, or it doesn't. And there's plenty of research on this. And, and as far as I know, the research sort of comes down on both sides of it. Um, but it seems to me that the thing to do is to look into, you know, have more scientific study of this and determine once and for all, is this the case or not? And it's probably the fact is it's probably the case for some people and not for other people. So it's it's still a mess. For example, I know there's research showing that as the Internet arrived in various Eastern European countries, and therefore, free access to porn arrived in those countries. Uh, reported incidents of sexual abuse, rape dropped precipitously in all of those countries, along with the introduction of porn. So the conclusion seems to be that these dangerous men, uh, predatory men, would just stay home and jerk off instead of going out and harassing women. Uh so therefore, the presence of pornography made the offensive behavior less likely. Uh, it sort of took the the wind out of the sails, right? Um, there's other research showing that um, kids who watch a lot of uh, or play a lot of video games with a lot of killing are less 
uh, sensitive to other depictions of killing, like a sad war movie, for example. They don't get as sad. Or you had these these maniacs in Colorado who shot everybody up. They were big gamers, you know. So uh, there's there's research coming down on both sides of that. But what's what's weird is how we're sort of picking what genre of media to apply this thinking to. So in porn, depiction is a problem. Uh, but in mainstream media, it's not. And then I saw a thing the other day on Eon Magazine. I think it's called this online magazine I read sometimes. Uh, it was an article by um, Angela Buckingham where she was uh, calling for a prohibition of murder in virtual reality uh, programming. And when I first saw the headline, I thought, fuck, yeah, that's true, because I just did this virtual tried this virtual reality thing over at Duncan's house a few weeks ago. And yeah, I was blown away by how immediate that felt. I, mean, I think I, I mentioned on the podcast, he put on this porn thing and it was like, holy shit, like I'm in the room with these women and they're like looking at me and talking to me. And like, I'm I just I, like, I got to go take a shower. What's going on here? Uh, it's a totally different, very immersive kind of thing to be in that virtual reality. So if you're killing someone, if you like come up behind someone and slice their throat open and the, you see the blood dripping on your clothes and stuff, that, yeah, that takes it to a whole new level. But it doesn't answer the underlying question, which is, does the sort of fantasy depiction of something make the reality of your behavior in in those terms more likely or doesn't it we need to answer that question we can't run around and say it does in porn but not in mainstream it does in virtual reality but not in you know other kinds of computer games we need to answer the question and uh, we're not answering it we're just applying this uh, muddled thinking willy-nilly so a lot of people have been asking what's going on with civilized to death that's a good question. Uh, I saw there was a discussion of it on uh, the Reddit thing. And uh, here's what's going on. The, I got my the comments back from my editor. I just looked at him a couple days ago. Um, without, like, talking too much shop, I'm just feeling uh, like I'm not sure how I want to go forward with this. Because I've been... Uh, this has been written for a long time and I've been rewriting it and changing things. And, uh, he's, his perspective, my editor's perspective is let's say more mainstream than mine. My perspective has more anger in it and is, I think more radical politically. And I don't want to pull that stuff out because I feel like the whole point of this book is, is that I'm arguing that civilization may have been the greatest mistake ever made by any species, by human beings, certainly. That's a pretty radical argument to make. And it's if it's if I'm right, it's a huge thing to wrap your head around. Uh, and it explains so many things, you know, principally Louis C.K.'s great line. These days, everything's amazing. Nobody's happy. Well, that's why. Right. Because we're on this. We're going in the wrong direction. So it doesn't matter how fast we go and how far we go. We're it's we're never going to get to where we want to be, which is a place where people are happy. So um, 
if that's true, I, I think toning down the argument and making it more, you know, mainstream and palatable to people who disagree with me is not the way to go. And I'm also kind of uh, restless about the whole mainstream publishing deal. Now, I know it's ridiculous, you know, to even think about walking away from a major publishing contract. But I've walked away from bigger things in the past. And I'm, I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind. I haven't really thought it through. But where I am right now is I'm thinking there might be better ways to do this. There might be, you know, to to take this content and break it into smaller pieces and put it out as as ebooks, uh, very, you know, five bucks instead of, you know, twenty eight ninety nine or whatever that we're going to charge for the book. Put it out in, in $5 chunks, 50 pages, because yeah, honestly, how many of you, I think the audience of this podcast skews toward, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, probably primarily. How many of you read, how many books do you read in a year? Do you pick up books and read them all the way through? Because the more people I meet in that age group, the more of a sense I get that books aren't really where they're going for information. They're going to podcasts, they're going online. They might, you know, a lot of audio books, a lot of it, it's, but the conventional paper, pick up a book and read it. It doesn't seem like a lot of people are really doing that anymore. Certainly not the people that I'm most interested in connecting with, which are you, people like you or, or you, in fact. So I'm not sure what the best way to do this is. I'm sort of thinking about different options and, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's weird to do all this work and then turn the control over to someone else. You know, it's like it's it's like the old music model, right, where you write the music, you perform the music, you record the music and then someone else takes all the control and all the money and you're supposed to say thank you. So I don't know. It's it's interesting, but I'll have some uh, I'll have some news on that definitively within a few weeks at least. And thank you for your interest. I'm sorry. I'm sort of uh, guarded about it. But until I make decisions, I don't really want to talk about it too much. Before I forget to mention it, uh, I got some art in the in the mail from a guy whose name I don't know how to pronounce. It's Ruarid something, uh, Crichton. He's, I guess, Scottish. I think that's a, a Scottish thing. Uh, beautiful, really beautiful art um, that he sent to me. Uh, Wim Hof portraits. He does these pen and ink portraits and some watercolor, just some really beautiful stuff. Uh, he just sent it to me from from the UK at his own expense. Just, you know, hey, man, got something to send to you. And I think my assistant gave him a mailing address. And so I, I met I, I found all this beautiful art that he sent me. So uh, I just you know, he didn't ask me for anything. He hasn't asked me to promote his work, nothing. Um, but I want to. So check him out. His uh, website is Rudog, R-U-D-O-G hyphen art dot com. Check out his stuff. It's really beautiful. He sent me a Terrence McKenna portrait, a Wim Hof portrait, a Henry David Thoreau, uh, and you'll see them on his website there. They're really beautiful. So thank you, Rudog, however you pronounce your weird Scottish name. I'll just stick with Rudog, I guess. So the other day, uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but there's a Hollywood screenwriter who is trying to get a project 
going with that's based on one of the stories I told in the Toma episode. It's the one where I'm on the boat with the father and the son in Alaska. And so we're doing he's putting together uh, an outline and we're going to be meeting with some like really like amazing actors. I don't know if I'm allowed to say who they are in public, but like, you know, half a dozen actors who you you would recognize immediately like, holy shit. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll ask him if I can start talking. I probably can't talk about it because there's, there's nothing on paper. But anyway, we're going to be meeting with these guys. And he was, he said, you know, he's writing, he's putting together this outline. And he's like, so, you know, what kind of music were you listening to when you were hitchhiking around in Alaska? And this was 1983. So I was thinking about the, the cassettes that I had for my Walkman. And, um, and one of them was a song called The Message. And it's one of the first rap songs. And it really ties into how I'm feeling in terms of this book. And I, I, I sort of looked it up online and I read something about the history of the song. And it's interesting because at that point, rap was kind of like cute party music. You know, there was no anger. And this was the first rap song that had anger and had political content and when they pitched it to the you know the equivalent of their publisher uh the the music company the record company they took it to this band and were like hey you know we want you guys to perform this and the band was like oh hell no definitely not like that that no nobody will like that that's bullshit that's angry we're not you know we don't do anger and uh, so then the guy who wrote it and another musician recorded it and it became one of the greatest rap songs ever and uh, really defined the genre. You know, there's a lot of fucking, you know, N.W.A. and all that stuff that came after. There's a lot of political, angry rap. And this is the song that really started. it. It's called The Message. Check it out. To move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. 
Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails, used to be a fag hag, such a dance to tango, skipped the life and dango, was her on prince, and seemed to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she can tell the stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so diddy, she had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge, I'm trying Not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac. A mid-range migraine cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Call, I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Cause the teacher's a jerk, he must think I'm a fool And all the kids smoke reefer, I think it'd be cheaper If I just got a job, learn to be a street sweeper I dance to the beat, shuffle my feet Wear a shirt and tie and run with the creeps Cause it's all about money, ain't a damn thing funny You got to have a con in this land of milk and honey They pushed that girl in front of the train Took her to the doctor, sold her arm on the game Stabbed that man right in his heart Gave him a transplant for a brand new start I can't walk through the park cause it's crazy after dark Keep my hand on my gun cause they got me on the run I feel like an outlaw, broke my last glass jaw Hear them say you want some more living on a seesaw Don't push me cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head Say what? It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too, because only God knows what you'll go through. You'll grow in the ghetto, living second rate, and your eyes will sing a song of deep hate. The places you play and where you stay looks like one great big alleyway. You'll admire all the number book takers, thugs, pimps, and pushers, and the big money makers. Dropping big cars, spending 20s and 10s, and you want to grow up to be just like them. Huh. Smugglers, scramblers, birds. 
burglars, gamblers, pickpocket peddlers, even panhandlers. You say I'm cool, I'm no fool, but then you wind up dropping out of high school. Now you're unemployed, all non-void, walking around like your pretty boy Floyd. Turn stick up, kid, but look what you done did. Got sent up for an eight-year bid. Now your manhood is took, and you're a make tag. Spend the next two years as an undercover fag, being used and abused to serve like hell. To one day you was found hung dead in the cell. It was plain to see that your life was lost. You was cold and your body swung back and forth. But now your eyes sing the sad, sad song of how you live so fast and die so young. So don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how i keep from going under yeah i don't know that's interesting isn't it that there's a guy living in inner city hell probably the bronx in the 70s which i can tell you was inner city hell and the 80s uh and he's comparing it he's saying at its worst life in that concrete fucking hell is like a jungle sometimes But you talk to people who actually live in jungles and they're pretty happy. They don't want to leave. Here's an excerpt from Civilized to Death, the book that may or may not be coming out at some point. This is uh, Daniel Everett, who lived with uh, Pinaha people in the upper Amazon. He says they laugh about everything. They laugh at their own misfortune. When someone's hut blows over in a rainstorm, the occupants laugh more loudly than anyone. They laugh when they catch a lot of fish. They laugh when they catch no fish. They laugh when they're full and they laugh when they're hungry. It's like a jungle sometimes. Except it's not because in a jungle, people are laughing all the time. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you uh, listen to this conversation with Wade Davis, which is far more interesting than my ranting. And I'm going to play you out with uh, a song from the Pinaha people who laugh at everything. This is a, a recording. I don't even remember where I found this, but it's a recording of uh, Pinaha people spirit singing. So I guess this is part of a religious ritual. I hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for telling your friends. And a special thanks to those of you who support the podcast financially, either through patreon.com or um, who send me mm, donations through PayPal or by using the Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com. Thanks to everyone. Catch you next week.
sitting in the office of Wade Davis at the beautiful campus of UBC uh, in uh, Vancouver. This has got to be one of the nicest campuses in the world, I think. Yeah, I mean, it sits in the Point Grey and looks up over Howe Sound. And, you know, I mean, one of the wonderful things about Vancouver in general is that you're living on the edge of the wild. Yeah, you know, wild. yeah, those mountains, very those mountains over there are just the beginning of mountains that run 2,000 kilometers to the Yukon. Yeah. And, you know, black bear come down to feast on salmon in neighborhood creeks. It's, it's, it, there's a sense that's kind of metaphorically, it's a perfect kind of feel of Canada. You know, you know, Canada kind of um, sits on the edge of the wild, and the, yeah. the weight of the north hovers in the Canadian imagination and kind of defines the essence of the national soul. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> one of so our, you talk like this for real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your TED Talks and everything, and I've read several of your books. It's great. You actually talk like this for real. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm not making you're, it up. You're yeah. a poet. It hovers in the Canadian soul. It's yeah. fantastic. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. No, our, but our, our most perfect expression of our, you know, especially in this electoral season, yeah. um, you know, the muted Canadian patriotism is best expressed in a wonderful line of francophone, francophone verse from a great poet songwriter. Gilles who said, my country is not a country, it's the winter. Uh, you know, it's a season, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I guess Brazil would be summer, maybe. Yeah, well, I, don't know. I mean, you know, it, Canada summer? is, I mean, it is really interesting to think about Canada in, the, in this era, and I, you know, particularly for me, because I've just moved back. I mean, I love the United States, and I right. uh, became an American citizen, I married an American. Uh, my career was made there, I was, you know, taught there, I found my heroes there, my mentors. Um, Andy Wilde, Tim right. Plowman, um, Schultes, yeah. David Mayberry Lewis, but I, I've really enjoyed coming home to Canada and um, uh, over the last couple of years, and it, it is a sort of a social democracy that works. Yeah, you know? yeah. I just just this morning coming up here to the campus, I was struck again by how everyone thanks the bus driver. Yeah, what a well, cool you know, thing. You know, there's a great story, Jan Morris, a great travel writer. Oh, I um, love Jan Morris. Yeah. I was just talking about her last night, really? actually, to a friend of mine who was married to a transsexual, and yeah. I, we, we got into the whole travel writer, yeah, transsexual sort of, thing. Yeah, and, and you know, she sort of raised the bar on that, um, but she famously came to Vancouver and said you could drown of niceness in Vancouver, <laughs> and what had happened is she had bumped into a Canadian on the street, and as you probably experienced, Chris, this morning, um, the Canadian said, I'm sorry. Yeah. But what Jan didn't understand is that the phrase, I'm sorry, in Canada is not an apology, it's a mantra. Mm. And it's really a way of saying, look, we live in this bloody impossible country where the winter consumes the year, where for most of our history there were more lakes than people. We live in a civil society. You didn't want to hit me. I don't want to be bumped in by you. So I, uh, I'm sorry. So you're mm. actually apologizing for the moment. You're not really apologizing mm. to the other person. But it's it's kind of a reflexive impulse that Canadians have that I find really charming. Yeah, it is. It, it's almost a conflict avoidance mechanism. Totally. Yeah. Totally. 
Yeah, I, when I was, I told you my wife and I spent two summers, you know, plus a couple of months on either side up here. And uh, one of the things I noticed was that at night, I, I, we, I had an apartment on, um, uh, what's it called, the West End? Is it? Yeah, by Stanley Park. Yeah, exactly. And uh, at night, especially on weekends, that got crazy out there. There was a lot of yelling and screaming and bottles breaking and fighting. And, and it, it's kind of like the Scandinavian thing where everybody's really nice until they get drunk. And then yeah, or until, watch the, out. Until, until the hockey team loses a Stanley Cup. Oh, the big thing. riots. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, Vancouver's always had a little bit of a rough edge. It's always been a little bit like the San Francisco of Canada. I mean, that's why uh -huh. petty crime's a challenge here because there is, you know, it's a conduit for drugs right. coming in from the Orient and everything. It's always had that kind of, and especially when I was a kid, I was born here, and when I grew up, you know, the, the places that are now all kind of redeveloped in these fantastic, the um, elaborate condo complexes and so on, these were kind of like, uh, they were kind of like the old fisherman's wharf. Right. This is where the, the, the wharf rats hung out. Well, you that's know? the frontier. Yeah, yeah. it's totally the frontier. Yeah, yeah, sort of a And I think that's Jack a big London. part, you know, in a strange way, it's a big part of my, my character and personality because I really grew up in the bush, and not because of my, my father was somehow um, f you know, not middle class, he was. His father was a doctor, but he was a doctor in the Canadian Rockies in this sort of hard rock you yeah. know, lead and zinc mine. Right. And in, in the 1960s, um, it, the economy was doing so well in a way, in retrospect, that almost every kid in BC could get a job in the bush. So it was quite natural to mm. be a park ranger or to be a logger or to right. be a commercial fisherman. And it really informed the lives of, of certainly my generation. So when it came time, for example, to go to South America, I remember the very first um, trip I did, you know, I, I had. Um, I had, uh, I mean, just the way I stumbled into that life was so funny because I, I actually was, I was fighting forest fires when I was 15, and we were these obsequious, obedient Canadian lads, and our fire camps were inundated by American draft dodgers because it was the uh -huh. only work they could get, uh -huh. and they would tell our bosses to piss off, and it was just irresistibly charismatic, and <laughs> and one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike of 1969 on the cover, uh -huh. and in this kind of teenage atavistic way, I thought, that's got to be the school to go to, to become cool like these guys. So I applied to Harvard. I don't think anyone from BC had ever gone there. I got in. I didn't know where it was. My parents didn't have the money to go to Boston with me. They sent me off on a plane with my big steamer trunk, and I got to Logan Airport, and I realized I didn't know where the university was. And I saw this um, African-American guy with a Harvard t-shirt on. I thought, he's got to know. He didn't know either. So I get into the, the subway system, drag my trunk to Harvard Square, come up in 1970 into this sort of carnival of chaos. Yeah. Harry Krishna, the STS, and everything. And then I realized my mom had made a mistake, and the dorms weren't to be open for a week. And I had no money. It was a weekend. I mean, I didn't have a penny. And so I dragged my trunk alone at the age of what I was, 17 maybe, uh -huh. through Cambridge until I found a church. I knocked on the door. Pastor opens it up, takes me in for a week, which is the moment I fell in love with the United States. Yeah. And, but he was a big war resistor, and his right. basement was full of weathermen about to escape to Canada. So I kind of got radicalized within 48 hours of arriving in the United States and, you know, set up the last university-wide Harvard student strike. It was ridiculous. And, and then I had to decide on a major, and I just had come out by chance. The deadline was the next morning. I had come out of the Peabody Museum of Ethnology for the first time, 
And with my imagination still swirling with these dioramas of these shaman and all dressed in all the colors of the rainbow, I ran into a friend in the street and I said, Stuart, what are you going to declare tomorrow as your major? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he, <laughs> said, and, and he said, well, you read about Indians. And like Forrest, Gump, I, like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. Seriously? And that's how he became an anthropology student. And then after two and a half years of just reading about indigenous people in books, my roommate and I were desperate to go live with indigenous people. And mm -hmm. we were in a cafe in Harvard Square. And David, there was a map of the world, a geographic map of the world right in front of us. And David suddenly looked at the map and he looked at me and he pointed to the high Arctic. Well, I had to go somewhere. So I watched my left arm lift and it hit the Amazon. I mean, if it had hit Italy, I might have become a Renaissance scholar. But having decided to go to the Amazon, there was just one man to see. Schultes. Schultes. Yeah. So, and this is what was incredible. I knew nothing really about Schultes. I had taken his Plants and Human Affairs course, but I was just one of many students. Right. And I rapped on his fourth floor Erie office at the Botanical Museum. And I didn't know that he was such an Anglophile that he didn't vote for the Republican Party. He professed not to believe in the American Revolution. He always voted for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> That's and, right, eh? and, and one of his colleagues said the only way for Schultes to go native would be to go to England. And so I got as far as saying, you know, sir, I'm from British. That was it. That's all it took. Really? I'm from British Columbia. In. I'm in. You're in. And, and I think he thought I was talking about that Columbia, his beloved Columbia in uh -huh. South America. But I, I simply said, I've saved up money in logging camp. Um, I want to go to the Amazon like you did and collect plants. And instead of asking me for my credentials, as would have certainly happened at most universities with most professors, um, and at the time, incidentally, I had never taken a course in botany, except his general course in plants and human affairs. Um, but this man for whom mountains would be named in South America simply peered across a mound of plant specimens um, through his antiquated bifocals and said, well, son, when do you want to go? Yeah. And two weeks later, I was in, you know, in, uh, in, in no South kidding. America. But Did you speak Spanish at that point? No, but what had happened is when I was 14, my mom had very wisely um, decided that Spanish was the language of the future hmm. uh, in North America. That was 1968. And so with a Spanish teacher from my school, along with about five other boys, we all went off to Colombia. And that's probably where I kind of got the idea, Colombia. Uh, right. And I lived in Cali with a family, but it was a very special um, 12 weeks because whereas the other boys were older, they were 16, I think some 17, I was only 14. And they were billeted with very affluent families right. in the city. I, by good fortune, was billeted with a more modest family in the mountains. So I lived alone. I never saw the other Canadian kids. Uh -huh. And many of them turned out to be very homesick because, I mean, Columbia was a long way away. In yeah. But I not only was not homesick, I, you know, as I felt like I'd finally found home. Yeah. And so I had the residue of that s summer in terms of Spanish language. But, you know, I really learned Spanish on the streets. But, but I, I, I mention all that because I went to... Um, just before leaving Schult for, for Columbia, I went to see Professor Schultes, and he, he, g he gave me a few pieces of advice. He said, he said, never forget that the difference between a poison, a narcotic, a medicine, and a hallucinogen is just dosage. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, um, don't bother with leather boots because all the snakes bite at the neck. And then, he, and then he said, don't forget to wear a pith helmet, because in 12 years he had never lost his bifocals. And his third piece of advice, which most assuredly didn't 
please or placate my mother was that I was not to come back from Columbia without trying ayahuasca. Really? Yeah. But he also, of course, handed me two letters that might as well have been written by God, or at least by Charles Darwin. Sure. And so I went to the Instituto in Bogota, and there was a wonderful botanist, Enrique Forero, and I, and I just said hello, and, I, and it turns out he was taking a bunch of students to the Choco, um, Colombian students. And I said, well, Jesus, can I, can I go? And he said, no, you can't. You know, the strike's on all the time. I'm having so much trouble with my students. I just can't possibly bring uh, an American student along. It just might be too provocative. I said, no, 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 you're not saying Norteamericano, you're so Canadiense. He said, oh, you're Canadian. Yeah, oh, come along, no worry, that's different. Yeah, sure. So I went off on this, this fantastic expedition. And and uh, we used mules to get into the bush, but again, you know, none of the Colombian kids could even had ever even been in the forest. But because right. of my background in Canada, I could run the mules for them. You know, and right. I could just when everybody else kind of fell apart, I could make sure everybody was working in the gear. And it was nothing for me. I'd been doing that kind of work all my life. So, right. so that kind of ability that kind of came out of being from BC. And that, that was very much um, part of the partnership I had with Tim Plowman, who was Schulte's real protege. And, right. and we connected in um, very early in my time, about two months after I'd been in South America. And of course, Tim had this extraordinary grant to study coca that Schulte's had helped secure. And he, he, um, uh, he, we befriended each other, and I, I, he became like my big brother and my absolute mentor. Hmm. But again, part of what the quid pro quo was, in a way, besides just deep emotional affection, um, was the fact that Tim was a poet, he was a fantastic botanist, he was a great musician, he taught me yoga, he taught me about psychoactive plants, he taught me about botany. I mean, he, he was, without doubt, the most single most important intellectual force in my life. Hmm. But at the same time, he came from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So mm. when we got into the bush, he, he, he couldn't find his way. I mean, he, mm. he also had thick glasses and everything. So my, my kind of role was to be the guide and the, and the bush kid, you know, right. who, who made sure we got out of the bush or got a fire going and all that stuff that I just done right. growing up. So yeah. that, was a, that was a really um, seminal few months with Tim Plum. And of course, that's what led to Andy, because Andy Weil, um, was Tim's great friend, right. and in a way, the two great protégés of their generation right. of Schultes. And of course, I was one generation right. below. So you met Andy in in Colombia. I met no. I met Andy as soon as I got back from after 15 months in South America. Tim had already come back. Tim had contracted serum hepatitis from a bad yellow fever shot. And so I had gone to the Northwest Amazon to to get uh, material of Amazonian coca for him. And so he got back to Boston to recover. And uh, that summer when I got back, Tim, Timo and I f- shared a flat in North Cambridge. And I, I'll remember the night I met Andy, he came over to cook us dinner. Hmm. And uh, we He's all, a good cook. Oh, he's, he's always, he was a great cook then. And uh, but, but, you know, so he immediately became another major major intellectual force in my life. Was he at Harvard then? No, or he, no he, Andy, meanwhile, while we were tra- traipsing around South America for a year and a half, Andy was just wrapping up the fantastic grant he had from the um, 
Institute of Current World Affairs, where he, he basically um, had a grant to study altered states of consciousness. Was that the marriage world. of the sun and the moon? That's what led to the marriage right. of the sun and the moon, because the one stipulation of that very generous grant was that he write a letter back once a month to the board or, or the committee or whatever, and those letters became uh -huh. that anthology. And that was after the National Institute of Health. He, he was there for a while, right, in Bethesda? He, Andy was there, I think, right out of medical school. I think so, and he got in some trouble. He did some research that seemed to show that, I don't know if it was driving under the influence of marijuana, wasn't really a problem if you had a chance to get used to driving while high? Well, you know, and, Andy, Andy's a really incredible guy and a great example for everybody because, yeah. uh, and Tim was a huge influence in this way. You know, Andy, Andy was, would be the first to admit that he was kind of a, uh, almost a, a whimsical but slightly nerdy, fat Jewish kid from uh, Philadelphia. No, yeah, was, was it? it Philadelphia or Jersey or one of those places, yeah, yeah. you know? And um, incredibly funny, incredibly witty, incredibly brilliant. He was, you know, the editor of the Crimson. Right. I mean, it was famously, you know, Andy who outed Timothy Leary, right, of course. Right. Not because Andy was against drugs, he was running a mescaline ring in Penny Packer Hall, as I, as I recall. But the point, allegedly. But, allegedly. But the point is that, that Leary had lied, and so it was, it was yeah. an ethical thing right. and a journalistic right. thing. But, but at any rate, I, th I think, you know, Tim turned Andy on to a lot of things like yoga. And then Andy, right then, sort of very self-consciously and deliberately crafted his life. He crafted mm. his body. He crafted his consciousness. He, uh, you know, he... he, he and that, that, I think, was the genesis of how Andy came to live so deliberately, mm. which, which is really what I think is his great message to the world, that you know, you, no matter what space you're in, you can change, mm -hmm. and, and you, can, you can choose to live consciously, right. both in terms of your health, your ethics, your treatment of the environment, treatment of women or men or whatever, yeah. you know. And, and in that sense, I think, you know, that's one of the things I've always so admired about Andrew. I think the other thing that, that I w admire about him, which is probably integrated into that, is that his first allegiance is to the truth, and he really Absolutely. doesn't give a damn. Absolutely. That is a key thing, and that's what any of his critics, uh, what few he has in the, in the in, you know, who, who who, who are only critical because anyone who, who even begins to contemplate these these other realms of possibility becomes threatening to them. You know? Right. No, I mean, this is Andy. I mean, Andy is the most rigorously ethical truth-sayer that yeah. I know. And that doesn't mean I'm sure he'd be the first to say he's always right. Yeah, of but, course. But he never, never compromises his, yeah. his ethics. And uh, You and I were talking before I turned on the recorder about his... I knew him as well when he went from being sort of semi-known among a certain group of people who were into altered states of consciousness and alternative visions of, of certain parts of medicine to Oprah and the cover of well, Time magazine. You know, it's more than that. I mean, it, it's really a complicated story because we must always remember that, you know, Andrew is and always has been the most sane voice um, about the nature of the ubiquitous trait of the human species, which is this desire to periodically alter consciousness. I mean, mm. that is so constant, the ethnographic record, that it has to be seen as part of the basic human appetite or desire. And primate appetite. Primate. I mean, France and, 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 and Andy has been the wisest spokesperson about that, certainly since he wrote The Natural Mind. And, and, and then he, of course, became a really sane voice when it came to human drug use. Yeah. 
And he and um, I always forget her name, an old friend of his, who was a school teacher, wrote that great book for teenagers oh, from, from chocolate to, to morphine, morphine yeah. right? Which was just a no-nonsense guide to teenagers as to what the drugs were going to do for and against them, whether those drugs be found in the street or in your mother's medicine cabinet. Right. Now that book was held up by Anita Bryant as a book to be banned. You know, during the during the sort of the high point of the anti-drug hysteria in the Reagan years, and things just became too hot for Andy. Mm. And I think that was a great thing for him because it, you know, he 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 could have run the risk of becoming a prisoner of his own drug rap in a way like my friend Terence McKenna did. Right. And Andy had too much integrity to do that. Mm -hmm. And that that moment was was a pivotal moment in his life when he um, you know, he, 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 he moved to his first love and passion and commitment, which was the transformation of the modern medical healthcare system. Right. And but without ever disavowing. Without ever disavowing. This the, is what makes him so courageous. Yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. you know, he, you know, he, he, you know, he stopped. You know, it was a little bit analogous to me and voodoo. You know, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I wrote two books on voodoo. Um, uh, Hollywood movies were made. You know, it became a whole sort of frenzy of media uh, hysteria. And this is one of your first books. It right? was my but first book. It was you know, the Serpent, the Serpent and the Rainbow. Rainbow. Yeah. But but again, in a slightly analogous way. Um, you know, I uh, I had some really good advice from a, a friend of mine, Charlie Fisher, who was another mentor, a professor of sociology at Brandeis, also Buddhist and a, a, a teacher of um, Buddhist um, theory and so on. Um, and we were driving around Boston at the height of this craziness, you know, where you know I was a National Enquirer and Doonesbury was doing a parody of the book and. Miami Vice was doing an episode. I mean, just crazy stuff. <laughs> and I mean, Vice. I went from like just being a graduate yeah. student to being. And yeah. Charlie just turned to me and said, "Wade, do you Willie?" He called me Willie. All those guys called me Willie. Andy and Tim and Charlie always called me Willie. Why? Well, it was kind of a nickname I had when I was, mm. I was a young kid. I was a I was yeah. a kid. You know, I was like like Bob Weir in The Grateful Dead. He's yeah. never good. He's still a kid. You know, yeah. even though compared he's, yeah. And that in that mob, I was a kid. You right. Know? And. Right. Um, so Willie was an appropriate name, and it's also the name I always use in South America because it's uh, hard to pronounce Wade. Wade and but, at, but at any rate, uh, Charlie just looked at me driving around this jalopy on Route 128, and he just said, Willie, do you want to be a zombieologist? And it was the most <laughs> wise thing I've ever heard. He said, yeah. do you want to spend the rest of your life yeah. chasing down? And of course, I said, I laughed and I said no. And at that instant, I turned my back on the whole story. I mean, right. I, I had spent four years of my life researching, writing two books, and I had said everything I had to say, and and I moved on, which was the greatest thing I ever did, the wisest advice I ever had. But again, just as Andy is perfectly willing to speak about the nature of human drug use, if the moment is appropriate, I am more than willing to continue an almost evangelical crusade to legitimize voodoo as simply the, the religion of Africa. Yeah. And, and so, but at the same time, I didn't get cornered any more than Andy did. Um, yeah. Circling the wagons and defending a hypothesis for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and and you know I think as a result Andy's gone on to um, have to have had a historic influence on on modern medicine. And yeah. Therapy. I agree. And another person who comes to mind in sort of the same realm is uh, Rick Doblin. 
Mm -hmm. Do you know him? Are you familiar with him? Not so Max? well. I mean, I've, yeah, of course. You yeah. know, I mean, and 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 you know, I mean, thanks to Rick and others, um, Dennis McKenna and and others, um, there is finally a kind of a renaissance in the possibility yeah. of serious research being applied through yeah. the metaphor of these psychedelic substances. Yeah. You know, and and you know, it's a long time coming. I mean, um, what do you think about the, I, I was looking this morning at your, uh, I don't know if it was your university page or Wikipedia or whatever. And one of your many titles is, was it professor of something about, um, cultures at risk? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I'll tell you a story. Um, Chris, I, yeah, the, the night that the Dalai Lama wrapped up his first tour of America it was 1979 and he spoke at Harvard and Kitty Corner E.O. Wilson was introducing Norman Myers in the Lowell Lecture Hall that His Holiness was going to speak at the Sanders Theater and Norman Myers had written a book called The Sinking Ark which was one of the first books to anticipate the emerging biodiversity crisis mm. And naturally, all the students were across the way to listen to His Holiness. Right. And in apologizing to the sparse audience, E.O. Wilson, Pulitzer Prize-winning biologist, one of the kindest and most decent men you'll ever meet, um, said to the sparse audience in Lowell Lecture Hall, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right and they'd rather be across the way listening to that religious kook, you know how far we've got to go to educate the public at large. Now, Professor Wilson would be the first to regret those words, but they were actually indicative of the chasm that existed then between biology and anthropology. Mm -hmm. You know, biologists tended to see people, particularly indigenous people, as part of the problem. Anthropologists couldn't abide what they saw as the elitist attitudes of, and even misanthropic attitudes of the, bio, of the um, biologist. And I probably was the only kid running back and forth between both mm. talks that night because I had come to understand because I had both things in my head, you know, biology and anthropology. I had Schultes as my mentor in biology, yeah. and I was acutely aware of, of what was happening to the tropical rainforests already by the 1970s. But my other mentor, who was another profound intellectual influence, was, was of course David Mayberry Lewis, who had founded Cultural Survival. And David was one of the great Americanists, but he also was very, very much in that lineage of, of Franz Boas, even mm -hmm. though he was British, um, you know, who, who saw that the only purpose of anthropology was to make the world safe for, for tolerance. His student, Ruth Benedict, literally said the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences and yeah. diversity. And so I was acutely aware that the same forces that were afflicting indigenous people were also leading to the erosion of biological diversity, often in the very same places where the people lived. Yeah. Um, and um, is that going to bother you? No, that's all right. Because uh, I could ask them to... That's okay. If, if they ever make a film of yeah. your life, that would be a great opening scene. Yeah. You running back yeah. and forth between well, it's, those it's two really, lectures. It's really true. And, and because of that, um, you know, I, um, I, mean, I, I mean, the miracle but for me is that I almost missed studying botany. You know, I really hadn't taken any biology even in high school. And when I went to the Amazon, and thanks to Tim, suddenly the forest, which I'd always loved, um, was no longer just a single um, hue of green. 
every plant had a name, every name implied a lineage, every lineage implied relationships, phylogeny, uh, the history of the earth itself. It was like a blind man coming to see. And, yeah. and when I came back, uh, Tim, I mean, I was pretty wild back then. And, and when I went, and when I shared that flat with Tim that first summer back from the Amazon, uh, he, the thing that most surprised him was how studious I was. Mm. I was in that science library 20 hours a day. And the, the night that I came to understand the Krebs cycle, I was thrown out of the library for making too much noise. Because you were so excited. So excited. Yeah. And because I was an older student, and because I had been an anthropology student, the metabolic pathways, which sometimes can confuse, intimidate, bore students, to me they all read like origin myths. Right. So I, I memorized them effortlessly. Right. And so, so um, you know, I, I always, so I, I sort of, in a way, took a diversion into botany because as a young as a young student of anthropology, I w I'd be getting all these great grades, but not understanding a damn thing about anthropology. So in a way, when I was young, you know, the the abstract elements of anthropology, kinship, social theory, frankly, was beyond me. And even though I got good grades, but in botany there was something I could understand. I mm. could hold it in my hands. So I took this kind of incredible diversion into botany for about six years, and ended up getting my PhD in botany. But you know, after about six years, you know, two things happened. I began to feel in collecting plants that I was almost like collecting hay, and and also I I strangely lost confidence in the classification system that we are all mm. obsessed with, right? Because, because as an anthropologist, I, I was so immersed in cultural relativism that, that I recognized that there are any number of ways of classifying right. nature. So this idea right. of running around and obsessively having to put a Latin name on every plant you see, it kind of just, I, I just, you know, I, you know, in, in a strange way, I kind of am like Forrest Gump in that, you know how like he, in the movie he would just run across the country and then he'd suddenly stop and, and when everybody else was expecting him to go, he turned the other way. Mm. And that's what I've done all my life, you know. I mean, every step along the way, I've been resisted by everybody around me, you know. I mean, what's wrong with going to UBC? Why, can't, why do you have to go to Harvard? Wait a minute, you're supposed to be a lawyer. What, what's this anthropology thing? Wait a minute, you're an awfully good anthropologist. What's this botany thing? Oh my God, you've just come back and you've all these plants. What's this voodoo thing? Wait so are you oppositional or, no, or it's just what is a, it? No, it's just I'm restless and I'm curious. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if it was Marshall McLuhan who said, you know, if it works, it's obsolete. You know, I mean, you know, you know if you, you know, so I mean, I'm yeah. always trying to take on something. That's not consciously, it's just yeah. what's happened. Right. So. You know, that said, so, so I, you know, and again, you know, because I was heavily influenced by David Mayberry Lewis and there at the beginning when they founded Cultural Survival and I taught in anthropology at Harvard as much as I taught in botany. And, and I, um, you know, I, I, and I wrote the book The Serpent and the Rainbow and then I um, uh, had a kind of pivotal moment when, you know, I, I applied to um, do a postdoc in botany. I was going to go back to my Amazon roots and so on. And I competed at New York Botanical Garden, got this very, you know, prestigious postdoc in the field that year. And when I finally asked them what the salary was going to be, my good friend Mickey Balick, who was offering me the job, who had been a student at Schulte's, uh, Mickey, uh, Michael Balick, but I call him Mickey. Mickey looks across and says, well, I think we can get you 19. And I said, Mickey, 19 what? My wife was pregnant. I was going to live in New York City. I mean, I just made, I just made half a million dollars by writing a book. Yeah. And so I said, Mickey, I love you, but you made a career choice. And that's when I sort of 
without even thinking about it, um, because I think I always knew that I was a storyteller. Hmm. I always knew I wasn't going to be an academic. I I always knew and I always felt that the lessons that I was learning about cultural and biological diversity in particular uh, were far too important to just be, you know, shelved in the silos of the academy. And and in that sense, I, I always reflexively was a public scholar, and, right. and so then I, then I kind of dove into the, the book One River, which was a kind of a risky proposition. Honestly, that's one of my favorite books. Well, I, I recommend well, it constantly. We, sh- we should, we, you know, that book has had more influence. I mean, it's had geopolitical influence in Colombia. In Colombia, it's amazing. You know, th- th- that book. Um, it's a fascinating story. It's a bit of a digression, but no, yeah. it's called tangentially yeah, speaking okay, for a reason. Well, yeah. So okay, so the book comes out. It does very well in North America. When, what year are we talking? It came out in '96. Well, there's there two great stories to tell about One River, which, of course, for those who don't know it, 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 it was originally going to be two books. It was going to be a biography of Schultes, mm. and it was going to be a travel account of Tim and me traveling, right? Mm. And and when the publisher kind of wisely said, "Can you put the two together?" It was a great idea because you know Schultes. Um, to be a, to be a biography, you have to be a conscientious, conscientious enemy of your subject, and I was too close to Schultes for that. Mm. And I also wasn't really interested in his early years or his later years as a professor. It was right. a period of time between right. when he studied the peyote cult with the Kiowa and came back from the Amazon in '53. That that was the real. That's really was the, the, yeah. the meat of his life in a way yeah. as an explorer. And, and uh, it also allowed you to tell a story about the Amazon then and now and so on. So I wrote this book, and, and, but I still was nervous about how the old man would, would take it. Mm. And, you know, it was six years of research. He was a terrible, he had no sense of personal story or myth. So, in other words, I did about 30 hours of tape recordings with him that set me back six months. Because mostly they were old chestnuts that were only half true. And what allowed me to really do the book as I did is the fact that he had actually worked for the U.S. government, much as he hates uh, the government. He worked for it for all those years. Right. So I knew somewhere in the archives were all that rubber stuff. Yeah. All that rubber stuff. Yeah. And I had his incredible photographic that's collection. That's what I was going to say. That's another yeah. amazing book. And then I yeah. had all, all his field notebooks. And being a botanist, I, uh, could, I knew what it meant when he collected that plant. I could see it. Right, right. And anyway, and then I also, you know, I also lightened up the, the narrative in general. The so book, he gave you full access. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but the, the wonderful thing is, is um, you know, I made up dialogue in both the sections with Tim and Schultes. Well, obviously, I don't know what Schultes actually said then in 43, any more yeah. than I really remember what Tim said in 74. <laughs> yeah. But those kind of fictional devices work as long as they're grounded in authenticity. Right. You know, if the meeting's there, you know it's on with the agenda, with the outcomes, and so on. Still, I was nervous about how the old man would view this book. Well, his wife told me he kept it by his bedside table until the day he died. And when he ever, he couldn't sleep at night, as men sometimes can't in old age, he'd pick it up and randomly read of anything of day of his life. And I'd literally recreated his life. And it got so much that, like, he once took me aside and he said, Wade, you won't believe what Mrs. Bedard said to me in Bogota when I met her in 1943. Look, it's right here. And he points to, and you see, he had made my life possible. I was able to, before he died, give him back his life. His life had become my imagination, and my imagination had fused and, and, and sort of fueled, um, infused rather, you know, 
a beauty and glory and honor into his life. And if it hadn't been for that book, outside of a small circle of, of, of botanists, he might well have been almost forgotten, even to this day, at this time. Yeah. So that was one thing. And then the other great thing that came out of that book is that um, I wanted it translated in Spanish in Colombia for Colombia. And so I essentially gave the rights to the Banco de la República. They brought up 500 copies in 2002 or something, but they got it translated by Nicholas Sesquan, who's a great Colombian poet. Mm. So it's really his book. Mm. And the Spanish translation, which comes in 200 pages longer, is incredibly beautiful, yeah. according to all my Colombian ah, friends. Great. So it comes out in about 2000. I forget about it. Then in 2008 or so, I go down to Columbia to make a film, and I see this hippie girl on the beach reading a frayed copy of an edition I don't even know about. Is it called Unreal? El Rio. El Rio. Yeah. And then that same week, I interviewed Rafael Pardo, who's a defense minister in Bogota. He's got a pristine copy of the same edition in his office. The book has gone viral. It's gone nuts in Colombia. Hmm. And, 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 I mean, not viral, it's, it's a book. So, but it sold about 15,000 copies, which That's is a lot, a lot yeah. in Colombia. Yeah. And, and, um, but the great thing is, it, the reason it did so well is that, is that, you know, it came out a time when nothing good was being said about Colombia. Right. The country was going through hell. Uh, after all, you know, 230,000 dead, 7 million internally displaced, um, you know, over the last 52 years of war. And suddenly here was this 800-page love letter to the country, mm. written not just by someone who was sympathetic, but someone who knew Columbia so well. And a lot of that was because of the research I had done, but also I'd lived in the streets. I knew the whole vibe of Columbia, and I loved it so much. And so that book became like a load, more than like a popular book, it became a kind of a lodestone or something. So like I went down once to give a lecture at one of the big cultural institutions. The hall held 500 people and 5,000 people turned out for the lecture. You know, unbelievable. I mean, waitresses burst into tears when they see me. And I, that's happened, you know. And that's not because of me, it's because of the book and what it represents to them. Right. And so, so track with this, this is so wonderful. Um, the head of the, one of the biggest corporations in Colombia, Jose Alberto Vélez, uh, Grupo Argos, he's since retired, he read the book and loved it. So when they had their 100th anniversary or whatever it was, he decided, let's not celebrate us, let's celebrate the country. So they paid for teams of naturalists to go to each of the five major regions of Colombia, the Los Llanos, the Plains, um, the coast, the Amazon, Chilco, and the Cordillera Central, to put together beautiful books, the, the sets of which were not to be sold, but to be gifted to every school and library in the country, mm. to send a message to a new generation of Colombians that we're not the country of drugs and violence, we're the country of the second most great biodiversity in the world after Brazil, more bird species than in the most beautiful yeah, country. Just in the Oriente, I think. Yeah, yeah. and, and so, so then, then I said, when we finished that project, I said, well, why don't we do the rivers? And he just didn't even hesitate. He said, great. So we're now doing a book on the Rio Magdalena, which is sort of the Mississippi of Colombia. Mm. Then, as I you know, traveled the river twice from source to mouth, I kept thinking what it meant to the country and how it carried the corpses of the dead um, during the worst of the violence, literally with um, uh, vultures perched on top of the, uh, the cadavers. And 
it carried the dead, and I thought, now it's still flowing, but now it carries the hopes of the living. So I started putting into the media this idea, why don't, as a symbol of the rebirth of the country, why don't we clean up the Rio Magdalena? And I thought it would just be ridiculously reduced, you know, reduced to ridicule or whatever. But it hit a nerve. And then um, President Santos, I was in Tibet, and I got a message from his brother-in-law, um, the former ambassador to London, saying the president would like to meet you in Bogota. And he's decided, with the Minister of the Environment, and he's a wonderful man, and also with the head of the National Science Foundation, or what we call Ciencias, um, to do a floristic survey of the entire country. Again, as a sort of symbol of the rebirth of the country, because now we can collect the plants everywhere. Mm. And when I met with the president, um, and this was before the referendum, I, I said, well, you know, this, this, I'm happy to help Mr. President, and, uh, but I've got this crazy idea. Why don't we also clean up the Rio Magdalena? He didn't hesitate, President Santos. And so, I don't know if this is going to happen, but we're, we're moving in this way, and I'm writing my next book on the Magdalena, mm. and my goal is to, is to somehow, somehow have all of this be part of um, contributing to the rebirth of an incredible country that has not deserved its agony. If it hadn't been for our consumption yeah. of cocaine, that, right. it's been the fuel that has kept this 50-year war uh, aflame. Well, and if they can get the FARC agreement back online again, well, they will for sure. Seems like it. Yeah, the, the interests are aligned well, and that, that, rebuild the country as a tourism destination. Well, I mean, right? first of all, the incredible thing is, despite all the problems, in, in, you know, they've greened their economy, maintained civil society and democracy, uh, set aside millions of acres in national parks, um, uh, you, you know, sought meaningful restitution with indigenous people, and have laid the groundwork for the greatest cultural renaissance in the history of Latin America because you've got two generations of young kids who had to travel abroad and they're all coming home right. and they're coming home with advanced degrees in every right. conceivable field and skills in the arts and technology so you know Colombia has always been the place of the finest universities the finest Spanish the most sophisticated yeah, great intellectual people, tradition great intellectual traditions so it's the opposite of a brain drain it's no it's the opposite of a brain drain yeah. and it's and you feel it in the pulse of the cities and yeah. so to me it, it, it's it's wonderful to think that in some small way one river, and Schulte certainly would be delighted to know that, that one river, um, you know, played some small role as a kind of a catalyst of dreams. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but my audience knows that I rarely gush over guests or anybody else, but I, I really hope you're very satisfied with your career. I mean, it's... Well, it's just been amazing, and you're, I mean, well, you know you've I, got adventure, you've yeah. got meaning, you've well, you got know, impact. Interesting. What's interesting is, you know, so I, 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 you know, I always, I, I do a, obviously a lot of speaking um, to colleges and to um, high schools, and and I, I have two daughters, twenty five and twenty eight, and I'm and I. My biggest sort of support base is, you know, in terms of readers, is that that young generation, and yeah. and I think that I think that generation is looking above all um, to have creative lives, um, authentic lives, maybe not be responsible for saving the world. They're a little sick of that, um, but they certainly don't want to do harm to the world, and and they, they really do struggle in a new economy to find, you know, livelihoods that actually allow them to maintain those things they aspire to, and. You know, in, a, in an odd way, with certainly not through any kind of um, design, I personify what 
in a way the new economy is all about. Multiple skill sets, mm -hmm. uh, self-employment, um, no expectation of pensions or retirement, anything. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, never mistaking activity for results. Play hard, work hard, and, and try to make an original contribution. And, you know, I, th I think it's not because I knew what I wanted to do, because, and this is what I always say to young people, that, I mean, most creative jobs don't exist. You have to make them. You make the job. I mean, you know, we have this terrible misconception that life is linear, that you go from A to B, and if you skip C and D, you don't get to the rest of the alphabet. No, life is made up of these serendipitous moments when you've got to, make a choice. And as, of course, Joseph Campbell famously said, you've got to cultivate that inner compass so that you own those decisions. So in the end of a life, you've been the architect of that life. Right. And that's a key to contentment in old age. Yeah. You know, bitterness and, and anger comes to those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them from peers, spouses, society, what, whatever. And I never knew what I wanted to do. But in retrospect, I, I had... And I didn't even particularly have any courage. And Richard, I mean, I was always jumping off cliffs. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Terrence McKenna, you know, he's got a wonderful line before he died. He said, you know, you, you, the great th secret of life is you jump off the cliff and, and the world doesn't push you down. It lifts you up. You land on a feather bed. You yeah, know, or and, you sprout wings. Or you sprout wings. I mean, I always say to young people, be an opportunist, not in the sense of being a schemer. Right. But always put yourself in the way of opportunities where the only option is success. And then you find yourself suddenly achieving things that would have been beyond your imaginings a few right. short months before. Right. That's and, why travel is so important, I think. Yeah. I not suppose. tourism. Right, but yeah. save up five thousand bucks, quit your job, sell your shit, and go, and, and figure and it and out. Give yourself the space to both reinvent yourself and the opportunity for your destiny to find you. That's it. Because you know, when mean, you're out there, those opportunities yeah. arise, and you can't anticipate them. No, you can't prepare. No, no, just you have to you know, be break, there. Break down any any interesting life and fulfilled life, and it is the, almost a comic routine of serendipitous. Yeah. Possibilities. Well, you yeah. showing up uh, a week early at Harvard. Well, right. I mean, start yeah. with that. You start know? with that. I mean, I mean, or and instead of like turning yeah. around or calling your mother to get money, you go to the church, and yeah. then that leads to this, and then right. that leads. You and meet this guy, like and, that. and, and, and that's the way it works. And you know, yeah. I think you you know, despair is just an insult to the imagination, and uh, pessimism is an indulgence, just like orthodoxy is the enemy of invention. Um, you have to do what needs to be done and then ask whether it was possible or permissible. <laughs> exactly. Well, getting back to something I referred to earlier when I saw your one of your titles in at-risk cultures, the first thing I thought is what culture isn't at risk these days? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, what happened, you know, so I wrote One River and, 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 I, and I don't know quite how this sort of happened, but I, I began sort of to just focus on what was happening to indigenous people all around the world. I'd always been thinking about that. And I, and I, wrote, um, 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 I wrote a book called, no, that came later. I wrote, I wrote a collection of essays. I know, I know part of it was driven by the fact that I, when I wrote my first book on voodoo, The Serpent and the Rainbow, I, I, you know, Hemingway said if you throw, I mean, if you sell a book to Hollywood, you should you know, start off in Arizona, drive to the California state line, toss your book over, and go back to Tucson and have a drink. <laughs> I didn't do that. I disappeared in the forest of Borneo and became, oh. in a sense, a 
literary activist. So you didn't write the screenplay or you weren't involved? No, I did take the scriptwriter, David Franzoni, who later won an Oscar for Gladiator, um, into... No, no, that was a different movie. I'm sorry, no, no. I had nothing to do with the... um, um, Actually, I did take the the scriptwriter for The Serpent of the Rainbow to Haiti. That was an amazing experience. But at any rate, you know, I, I became sort of an activist on behalf of the Penan and and then I wrote, I wrote an article for the National Geographic magazine called Vanishing Cultures, they called it, mm-hmm. where I really looked at this issue and looked at this issue of language loss. And, you know, in 1998, there was a complete consensus in the academic community that half the languages of the world weren't being taught to children, which means effectively, it implied at least that half the, of humanity's intellectual, social, spiritual knowledge was being sacrificed in a generation. And yet linguists, largely because of the influence of Noam Chomsky, were largely mute on the subject. Mm. And I, I began to scream about it, and that was sort of the basis of that article. And based, based on that, again, a serendipitous moment, Geographic was entering their second century, and they wanted to shift their focus from telling you about the world to helping you save the world, and they were going to embrace conservation in a major way. And that's when they put together this group of explorers and residents to sort mm. of personify that new mission. Right. And I was fortunate to be invited to serve as their social anthropologist with the explicit mission of changing the way the world viewed and valued culture in a decade. And we realized that polemics weren't persuasive and politicians follow but they don't lead. But we thought that, you know, you know, how do you do something about culture? I mean, after all, if, if you're a biologist and you identify an area of high species endemism, you can try to create a protected area, but you can't make a rainforest park of the mind. You know? yeah. And so we realized the only thing you could really do is try to change the way the world viewed and valued culture, as my mandate had said. And we thought the way to do that was through storytelling. So for the the 13 or 14 years I was at the Geographic in that position, I traveled all around the world telling stories of culture, but not in in the way that, you know, ethnographic films sometimes simply celebrate the exotic other. I went to places in what I had termed the ethnosphere, where the practices were so dazzling that you couldn't help but come away with a new appreciation of this key revelation of anthropology, which is that the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being you, they're not failed attempts at being modern. Each is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when the peoples of the world answer that, they do so in the 7,000 different voices of, of humanity. And that central idea of cultural relativism, that you know, the world into which you were born is just one model of reality, the consequence of just one set of adaptive. So are you unabashedly a supporter of that concept? Totally, totally. So the Napoleon Chagnon and that told school, you, you don't agree with I, that? I mean, I mean, I mean the, the cultural materialists? Yeah. No, I, I just... Well, uh, actually, I mean, uh, yeah. Harris and Chagnon were, yeah, were yeah. arch enemies. Yeah, and, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think Marvin Harris had some interesting things to say. Yeah. But, I mean, a classic example, um, um, you know, uh, let me, first of all, sure, one, yeah. one, one of the really interesting things that's happened in our lifetimes, it's sort of the moonshot of this generation. If the first moonshot took us out to space to see the dark side of the moon and the Earth rise and so on, hugely significant moment in human history. Yeah. This new moonshot has gone, is also a big journey, but a journey to the fiber of our beings. Right. And in the last generation, genetics have proven to be true what, what the anthropologists have been saying, because we now know 
categorically that the human genetic endowment is a continuum. Race is a fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We're all descendants of that handful of people who walked out of Africa some 65,000 years ago and then embarked on this incredible journey that in 40,000 years settled all of the habitable parts of the world. But if the key thing is if you accept that we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, by definition we share the same genius. And whether that genius is expressed in technological wizardry or invested in the challenge of unraveling the complex threads of memory inherent in the myth is just a matter of choice. So you don't believe there's any qualitative difference in, in different cultural paths? That oh, I think there's... Trod. I mean, who, 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 who defines in terms of reference of, right. of the quality that right. we talk about? I mean, a perfect example um, of, of this would be, you know, um, how, how this idea... And don't forget that idea that, that uh, cultures evolved goes right back to the 19th century. And it, it, it emerged, I mean, survival of the fittest was a term invented not by Darwin, right. but by Herbert Spencer, right. an anthropologist. And this idea was, you know, if species evolved, surely cultures evolved. And so we, they had this idea that we went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized to the strand of London. And the measure of success was, of course, technology. So we stacked the card deck in our favor right. and came up with this idea. And, and it, it was Boaz who shattered that notion with the notion of cultural relativism. And his students, and his Margaret stu Mead. Margaret Mead yeah. and, and Ruth Benedict and, yeah. um, I mean, that whole school, right? Yeah. And, and, and what I'm, I'm arguing is that the genes, geneticists have, in fact, affirmed the central intuitions of anthropology. Now, you, you know, I mean, let me give you an example. A, a classic example is a sort of the, the place where the two most extreme you know, different cultural ideas came together, I suppose, which is Australia. You know, when the, when the British arrived in Australia, um, they saw people that looked strange, that had simple material technology, but what really offended the British about the Aboriginal peoples was that they didn't have any interest in improving upon their lot. They were lazy. Yeah. Therefore, they were lazy. <laughs> yeah. and, and, of course, yeah. progress and improvement was the ethos of Victorian Europe. I mean, it was values that were crushed in the blood of Flanders in the Great War, but that's what the 19th century was all about. And so the British, in their inimitable way, concluded that the Aboriginal people weren't even human. They began to shoot them. Right. And as recently as 1902, it was debated in Parliament in, in Melbourne as to whether or not Aboriginal people were human or not. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. You know, in the 1950s, ranchers could shoot owls with pretty much impunity, you know, who traversed their lands. Yeah. But the point, the real point here is what, what was really going on was a subtle devotional philosophy that the British didn't understand, and that was a dreaming. And the whole idea of the dreaming is that the world at your feet both exists and is waiting to be born. That the purpose of life is not to improve anything, but to do the ritual gestures deemed to be necessary to keep the world exactly as it was at its creation. That's what dream time is really about. And, and, and the interesting thing isn't to say who's right and who's wrong, but it'd be like if all of Western intellectual energy had gone into pruning the shrubs in the Garden of Eden, right? And, and, but, but the interesting thing is, is you know, if we had followed that trajectory, we'd, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon. Yeah. But we also wouldn't be talking about um, climate change and our capacity right. to transform the biological. Well, that's what I was thinking. It's you like know, if there you know, is a way to judge the value of a culture, it's sustainability. Well, it's sustainability, or it's other values. I mean, it's like you know, you know. I mean, take take for example, if I always say if a Martian 
um, um, anthropologist came to America, he sure it would see wonderful things. And if the measure of success was technology, we'd shine. But if they looked at our social structure, our family structure, they ask a few obvious questions. You know, you love marriage, but half your marriage is in and divorce. Right. You say you like your grandparents, but only 6% of your homes have grandparents and grandchildren. You send them off to die. You send them off to and die. You put your kids you, in you, factories. You say you love your family, but you've got this weird slogan 24-7 implying, ab, you know, and then you wonder why the average American youth by 18 has spent three years watching television or video right. games, right. contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe it's called a, a crisis yeah. by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. You say you're happy, but you consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs as you put 400 million tons yeah. of toxic waste in your rivers. The point isn't to dump on who we are. It's just to suggest that, you know, we're not the paragon of human... Well, I dump on who we are. I, I've yeah. just finished a book called Civilized to Death. Uh -huh. And this is all... This is the point of the book. Yeah. Is if civilization is sold to us as this amazing boon for humanity... Yeah. Then why are we taking so many antidepressants? Why is suicide well, right. rampant? Yeah, yeah, why are yeah, we unhealthy? Thing that, you know, the other thing is that you know we 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 in all cultures um, are myopic. You know, faithful to their own interpretation of reality. You know, most native tribal names mean the people. The people. I mean, yeah. those guys over there, right. savages. We're the people. You know, yeah. barbarian comes from the Greek barbarous. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. Right. And and the, but the Aztec had the same notion. Right. And m the big message of anthropology is that in a multicultural, pluralistic world, we can't afford cultural myopia anymore. And and so the goal isn't to um, isn't to say who's right and who's wrong, it, it's to suggest that humbly that no culture is a paragon of humanity's potential and that every culture is a product of its own history. Um, and, and so we, you know, we tend to think of ourselves, the modern world, quote unquote, as not really a culture, but like the real world and all these other cultures are out there. Right. But of course we are a product of our history and, and we can see in that history points where we, in a sense, both forge our values and some might say went astray. So, for example, in our effort to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith in the Renaissance, which led to the wonders of the Enlightenment and the scientific methodology and the breakthroughs of science and medicine, we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater because mm -hmm. when Descartes said that all that existed was mind and material, Instantly, anything that was mystical, magical was thrown out, but also metaphor was thrown out. Right. And as Saul Bellow said, science made a house cleaning of belief, and if, if things couldn't be measured and observed, they couldn't exist. So the idea that a flight of a bird might have meaning, or that a mountain could be a deity, were dismissed as ridiculous. But what was missing is that the mountain being a deity, it's not about whether it's true or not, it's how the belief system mediates a human relationship with that mountain. I mean, so for example, I was raised in these forests of British Columbia to, to believe they existed to be cut. That was the foundation of the ideology of scientific forestry that I mm -hmm. learned in school and practiced in the woods as a logger. Right. That made me different from my First Nation friends who believed that they were the abode of spirits that would have to be embraced during initiation rites. That's not who's right and who's wrong. It's how the belief system mediates the relationship with a profoundly different consequence for the ecological footprint. So, I mean, yeah. my way of you know, thinking of these forests tore them asunder in three generations, right. whereas the way of thinking of the Haida had a very modest imprint. So, but see, I think that does lead to the conclusion of who's right and who's wrong.
you know, because one way of thinking leads to destruction. And have you ever heard of a book called Finite and Infinite Games mm -hmm. by James Cars? Yeah. He's a philosopher at NYU. It's a beautiful little book. Basically, he, he says all relations can be seen as either a finite or an infinite game. A finite game is meant to be won and finished. And it, it's played out within certain boundaries and yada, yada, yada. An infinite game is a game where the point is to continue play. Mm -hmm. And like once you wrap your head around that metaphoric way of looking at, at life, everything sort of falls into those two categories. Well, you, think, you think, I mean, you know, going back to your, that, your, that, those two possibilities, I mean, just the very fact that we, we, we seriously, with a straight face, define economic well-being as perpetual growth on a finite planet. Exactly. It, yeah, it's, it's like, it well, can't you work. can't do that. And, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, I mean, I think, again, the anthropological lens is helpful because it, it points out things like that. I mean, for example, in British Columbia, what does it take to get a mine established? You know, you cobble together a company, you secure the subsurface rights to a place you've never been, and as long as you can guarantee the government a flow of royalties um, or, or, or revenue through taxation, you can secure the right to destroy a valley for all time right. for your own private benefit and that of your stockholders. But what's interesting is that, yes, we may have environmental assessment processes of various qualities, but fundamentally there's no effort to even begin to um, create a metric for the value of that land left alone or a metric in the calculus of economic development that would take into account the cost to the commons who aren't invested in that company. Yeah, the externalities. In, yeah, it's just dismissed yeah. as an externality. But, mm -hmm. but if, if those costs were factored in, you know, it would make for, I think, wiser resource decisions. You know? yeah. So yeah. I, think, I think, you know, I remember I, I, I did this book, well, it was a series of lectures called The Massey Lectures in Canada, and the book became The Wayfinders. But yeah, great book. There, there, was really a, um, there was a subtitle put on by the editors, you know, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. And, and in the end, the real answer to that was two words, climate change. And mm -hmm. what I meant by that is not to suggest that we go to a pre-industrial past or that any people be kept from the genius of the modern, quote-unquote, but rather to suggest humbly that the very existence of these other ways of being, these other ways of thinking, these other cultural realities, puts a lie to those of us in our culture who say that we cannot change when we know we must change the fundamental way we interact with the planet. Yeah. I mean, climate change has become humanity's problem, but it's important to remember it wasn't caused by humanity. It was caused by a very narrow subset of humanity. I would argue not even humanity. I, I'm arguing in this book that there's a, a, an emergent intelligence of post-agricultural human population density that we are subsumed within the way birds are subsumed within a flock and that it's that intelligence that's actually guiding this destructive behavior. People are worried about AI taking over. Mm -hmm. I, I argue it's already happened. <laughs> but that's yeah, a, that's a yeah. long story. I don't, I don't yeah. want to go on it. My, yeah. my listeners have heard me harp about that. <laughs> we can talk about that another time, maybe. But one thing I wanted to get to before we run out of yeah. time was, you know, you were talking earlier about, about your beautiful uh, sort of sudden epiphanies when you were looking at the jungle or when you were looking at the Krebs cycle within the cells and, and how you had these sort of moments of... Um, almost quantum insight in your life. And that made me think about uh, the, the role of hallucinogens in my own educational mm -hmm. time and, and just sort of how I felt in my own experience that there were moments that were sometimes, not always, but sometimes 
uh, assisted by hallucinogens, and you were studying them in the jungle. Were you also experiencing them, oh, or yeah. was that I mean, important it, for you? It's, it's really because I know Schultes didn't really, right? He well, was, no, Schultes took them all the time. Oh, did he? But oh, you know, I mean, oh, Schultes okay. was just of a generation of explorer. Where I think, you know, I mean, Schultes was a real explorer, and he he both nature's personality, perhaps um, his upbringing, his era. Yeah, you know, he he. He, uh, you know, he had to keep himself sort of shuttered within his firm reality um, just to keep sane, I think, in all those months and years in the Amazon. So, you know, he you know, would famously remark, he'd take all these ayahuasca or whatever, and he'd say, oh, he, you know, he just saw colors, you know, as he put it, you know. Mm. No, I mean, it's interesting. When I, when I think back, when I look back at the, the ingredients um, that sparked the, or that formed the recipe of social transformation that allowed, in my lifetime, women to go from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, pe gay people from the closet to the altar, you know, ha you know, having, having uh, you know, a, a, a new awareness about the nature of Gaia, of the earth, of our place in the universe. There's always one ingredient expunged from the record, and that's the fact that millions of us lay prostrate before the gates of awe, having taken some hallucinogen. I not only am happy to say that I took them. I, I'm delighted to say they changed my life and I wouldn't write the way I write. I wouldn't think the way I write. I wouldn't have understood cultural relativism as readily as I came to understand it. I wouldn't treat women the way I treat women um, had I not had those experiences with yeah. psychedelics. I mean, I, I tend to agree with Ramdas that, you know, you get the message and you hang up. I mean, I don't right. know how many um, experiences with LSD or with San Pedro or with peyote or mescaline in that case or or um, ayahuasca one needs to take to to learn most of what is yeah. there to learn and of course i've been fortunate to take many of these substances in strict ritual context as well right. with indigenous people and you know and that, that as had andy and that's why you know andy was able to articulate so eloquently that you know that the difference was that indigenous people you know recognize that the pursuit of the state of consciousness is a legitimate thing to do that you insulate the user in a protective cloak of ritual, that you use your drug, quote-unquote, in natural forms, which are pharmacologically the safest and everything. I mean, you know, you know, Andy drew all those lessons from his experience with right. indigenous people. But, you know, you know, I, I, always, I always sort of think it's funny when, you know, looking back on how our parents would always warn us, you know, don't take these drugs. You'll never come back the same. Well, that was a whole fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know? And so, yeah. you know, unlike Bill yeah. Clinton, who equivocated. I mean, right. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I used to smoke a lot of pot when I was younger. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I, I frankly, you know, I, I'm like Andy. I tell it as it is, and I find it really surprising the way the society has suddenly turned the corner on marijuana very and, quickly. And yeah. I think it's good in terms of breaking the criminal element. And although there's a lot of dope growers in Humboldt County who probably wish it was still going to be illegal. But on the other hand, I find it somewhat surprising. I mean, we, we struggle to get a, a plant like coca leaf um, uh, uh, acceptable when all the data shows what an incredibly nutritious and beneficial plant it is. And yet, you know, marijuana is called dope for a reason. I mean, it, you, know, mm. it, you know, no one can tell me um, you know that that marijuana sparks activity, insight, and and uh, 
uh, energetic engagement with the world. It's, no, it, sativa, maybe. Well, I mean, not maybe. Indica. I mean, maybe. I'm not. I'm not here to knock pot, but uh, but I. But you know, it, it, it's it's to me to me. Um, it's not a totally benign substance, right. you know. I mean, it's right. it's a drug. It's like a drug that has to be, one has to be, you know. There's no such thing as good and bad right. drugs. Good and bad ways of using drugs, especially with edibles, because of the dosage edibles. issue. You mentioned. Yeah, the yeah. dosage. So the point is that you know we're we, I I don't think this movement to legalize marijuana necessarily suggests in any way that we finally, as a society, have got a good handle on drug use. Right. You know. I I, I you know I. I I, I, you know, I don't think we've really sort of solved that. I mean, I think it's a great thing to legalize marijuana, but I, you know, my reasons for it are, are perhaps unusual. I mean, I, you know, here in British Columbia, by even conservative government estimates, pot is bigger than timber. And what does that really mean? It means tens of thousands of kids get up every day, ultimately knowing that their parents aren't part of the social contract, they're not paying taxes, they're breaking laws, and that impact on that generation of kids, I think, is more corrosive to the social hmm. matrix of the society than the use of pot. Right. You know, um, and and if we legalize it and tax it and, and bring it into the economy, it'll be good for the economy, good for those families, but also it'll mean that those kids know that they're part of the team. You know, part of the society, and and that's a good yeah. thing. And also the the reduction of hypocrisy of authority. You know, which may just be a different way of saying what you yeah. just said. But when the authority figures tell you something and then your experience shows you that's not true, that right. changes your relationship exactly. with authority in general. Exactly. Well, I mean, I, you know, and I, I think, again, this gets back to that book of Andy's, Chocolate to Morphine. I mean, that's just what he was trying to do. He exactly. was, as yeah. an authority, trying to tell the kids the truth. Right. The book got banned. You right. Know I mean? yeah. Practically, you know. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, uh, um, you know, I, 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 just like I can't imagine not having studied botany, I can't imagine not having um, experienced that psychedelic space. And you said earlier, you used a phrase, something about the, uh, that millions of us have, have kneeled uh, prostate at the... Oh, I, at, I, the, but I, I always saw, you know, millions At, at the gates of wonder. At the gates of awe. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. through the use of hallucinogens. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 Do you no, again, again, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, dear Andy, I mean, um, you know, Andy's the, the first to, 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 you know, one of the first to talk about set and setting. Right. You know, and that, that, right. that, you know, it's not, it's, it's not the tab of acid or, or the chunk of um, San Pedro or the, or the tumbler of ayahuasca. It, it's, these substances create a kind of a neutral template of the imagination upon which various forces can go to work. So, you know, again, one of the reasons I'm not an advocate of any kind of drug use is that who, who am I to advocate such an experience for anybody? I mean, you know, I, I took um, psychedelics in a moment in time, in an era, when the entire kind of gestalt of the experience, the entire uh, set of the experience, um, had, had, had sort of set you up. Um, to have a spiritual experience. Right. That's what we were looking for. You know, I mean, I wasn't taking acid at, in clubs and, 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 and having 
techno music pound away in yeah. my head. You know, I was right. taken in nature. I was taken in, in you yeah. know, and I'm not trying to be precious with that. I'm right. just saying no, that that's good advice. That's the way that I always had a very positive yeah. experience with these these substances. And you know, I mean, you know, people used to joke that Tim and I ate our way through South America. I mean, I, you know, I was, you know, we, we just if we saw a plant that we thought might be psychoactive, we just <laughs> went for it. You know, we were young and crazy. I mean, Tim Tim seemed terribly old to me at the time, but he was only thirty. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. 20. I mean, we were yeah. invincible. Crazy. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a guy yesterday uh, who, oh, I see you've got darkness in El Dorado up there. We talk about that for hours. Yeah. Um, uh, he used the phrase, the shattering of assumptive reality, or the yeah. shattering of presumptive assum- reality, presumptive yeah. reality yeah. Uh, which I found to be very interesting. And I was thinking as you were talking, someone told me a story recently. I don't know if it's true. Uh, but it was about some of the the holy shamans in in, in Latin America who realized that they weren't going to be able to defend themselves against the encroaching civilizations, and um, they. I, I, there's that great book that Andy recommends, uh, the Wizard of the Upper Amazon. Yeah. It, you know, so they started essentially kidnapping children from the encroaching cultures to raise them within their tradition so that they could sort of uh, you know move back and forth and that one of the ideas was that the only way to defend the jungle was to get ayahuasca out into the world Hmm. so that it would then inform that aggressive culture and thereby neutralize it from within. It, it sure is out there in the world. It is, it, just in the last 10 years. It's absolutely incredible because I, I remember even in 74 when I first took ayahuasca, um, you know, it, it was so obscure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you, you know you, I mean, Columbia was obscure. The Amazon was obscure. Right. I mean, now people go down there and get back in time for the bar mitzvah. They're right. brother. I mean, and the whole uh, Silicon Valley, everyone's yeah. microdosing and they're going to Burning what's, Man. What's, what's interesting about, yeah, what's interesting about the, um, um, the ayahuasca phenomenon is that the whole gestalt of it has changed. In other words, if you, I, not that long ago, I, I took ayahuasca with the Kofan, um, with Randy Borman, who's a really interesting story. Um, but in the morning, when we were doing the, it was completely within the traditional context, you know, of the Kofan. Peter? There's a, there's a guy named Peter Borman who spent a lot of time in the Amazon. Are they related? No, no. 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 Randy Borman, yes. uh, just back to your thing about Wizard of the Upper Amazon, uh, yeah. in the night after World War II, a whole group of couples of various missionary organizations went into the eastern forests of Ecuador to evangelize it. And so each couple picked a tribe, right? Mm. And the Kofan were evangelized by a couple that had the kind of delicious name of Bub and Bobby Borman. <laughs> and they had, a, they had a couple boys, but particularly Randy, uh, while they were evangelizing the Kofan, the Kofan were evangelizing course, Randy. Right. And he grew up totally bicultural, wow. totally fluent, and he tried to go to school in the States, just didn't like it, and, and ended up going back and marrying a Kofan woman. And then meanwhile, of course, they, he was raised in a town called Dureno, which was completely isolated on the Rio Agarico. I mean, totally isolated in the 1960s. And at that time, the, shamanic role, the, the, the chief's role was kind of a shamanic role because the only threats to the people were these forces of the forest. But by the 1970s, you know, Texaco had discovered oil. There was a pipeline in 74. 
roads fall mm. and colonization, deforestation. And suddenly the threat was that. And, and Randy, of course, spoke English, spoke Spanish, mm -hmm. could go and talk to those people in the glass towers in Quito. For the Cofan, it made perfect sense that he'd become chief, which he did become chief. And uh, he, he then you know, set out um, in a very powerful theatrical way um, to secure tremendous rights for the Cofan people, including the right to bear arms and protect their forests and so on. He's a real hero. I mean, he's a remarkable, good friend of mine. Reminds me of um, Joe Kane in the book Savages. Well, Joe Kane, I mean, that book, I mean, I know the Warani very well. Uh -huh. And, in the, and uh, he may have spoken about Randy Borman in that book, but as far as I can remember that book, the only person who comes out well is Joe Kane. That's uh -huh. somewhat suspect to me. Yeah. I it, mean, I, I, and, and I, I, I knew the Warani. I, was, I lived with him a long time before. Hmm. And Joe Kane also wrote a book about descending the Amazon. Right. And, I never uh, read that one. Well, I think they make some claims in there about being the first to do it. And it was my friend John Tishner who set that all up years before. Uh, right. Did you ever come across Daniel Everett? Well, no. Of course, only the, you know in the, his books. I've got his books, and, and of course, I read that great New Yorker article. And my friend wrote that article. Oh, did he? Yeah, oh, it's yeah. a great article. It is. It's yeah, a really brilliant article. And it's a great. Uh, Don't sleep there, snakes. Yeah, I've it's got a that great book. book. I've got that yeah. book. No, I think it's. Well, I mean, I, we probably don't want to get into Chomsky, but this is the that's yeah, all you that. talked about the, yeah. the linguistic thing, yeah. And uh, what's the? Uh, there's another great uh, uh, into the heart by Kenneth Good. Oh, he's yeah. a, he he had my same editor at Simon and Schuster. I mean, that's a little, isn't that? He married the Yanomami, right, and brought her to Philadelphia. It was disaster when he had a big rift with um, uh, Chagnon. He was part well, of that whole you know, the, mess you, there. You just you know, that's crossing a line as an anthropologist. Marrying you know? a local woman. If you want to, if you want to stay, well, I don't know if it makes a difference whether you stay or go, but but I mean, it is, you know. You succumb to the romance in the moment, the fantasy in the moment, but are you really thinking, what's her life going to be like? You know, yeah. What's your life going to be like? When, right. And obviously... And if you have children... And it didn't work out, I mean, as far as I know. So yeah. I think that's, a, that's always a tricky thing. Yeah. You know? And Peter Matheson, you ever... Did? Oh, yeah, I knew... I didn't... You know, I, I, I met him, but I always regretted that I didn't kind of go and corner him. You know, yeah. I, you know he, he and Gary Snyder were probably two of the mo most important literary heroes I had. You know what's funny? Yesterday I did an interview with a guy who teaches here at UBC uh, and Gary Snyder was the man who like sort of defined his life. Was, who was the guy? Who, who, um, uh, were you in creative writing? He's a, he, he studies e Eastern religion. He wrote a book called um, Trying to Not Try. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, he teaches here. He's in, he's in the anthropology department. He works with he's Joe in, Heinrich. Um, his name's not coming to me right now, but uh, he read, uh, I think it was Dharma Bums, and Gary Snyder appears as this sort yeah, of uh, Chinese scholar, poet, living in the mountains, and the, the man I was interviewing yesterday was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, because, I mean, I, I never set, set out to mimic Gary, but um, in a way, I, my life was parallel to his, you know, because yeah. he... Um, he was a park ranger, right. fire lookout, logger. Sort of a mystic, intellectual. Yeah. And then he also did his undergraduate thesis on a height of myth. But, uh, so when I was, when I was just young, um, I had a hippie girlfriend, Edipi, and she had a Volkswagen van that looked like a Louisiana bordello. <laughs> and we, we set off on a mission, and I wanted to just find Gary Snyder. 
And I found him <laughs> in his garden in the Sierra Nevada and began to spew apologies, but for doing just what I had done, interrupted his day. Right. But he was very kind. He welcomed me in for tea. And it turned out I had just come from working for a year in Haida Gwaii, and he had written his thesis at Reed on the Haida myth, but he had never been to Haida Gwaii, so we had a lot to talk about. At this point, a student knocked on the door and our conversation was cut off. But we were wrapping it up anyway, um, and uh, we said our goodbyes after the mics were unclipped. So we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and now I'll play the canned outro, and I will catch you next week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does. Please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up
to the ground. 